Ice Theatres, the market's most immersive and high-end premium format. Because the light shall be treated like sound coming from everywhere. Discover the Ice Theatres experience and embark on an immersive odyssey beyond reality. Ice Theatres, meet us at CinemaCon with 2617A. This is the Box Office Podcast in our daily CinemaCon edition brought to you by Ice Theatres. Today is Wednesday, April 27th, the third day of CinemaCon 2022. In today's episode, we are going to be reviewing everything that went down on Tuesday here in Las Vegas, and we will be joined by Cinemark CEO Sean Gamble, who taped an interview in advance of the event going over his expectations, not only for Cinemark, but for the industry in 2022. A great interview we have with the CEO of the third largest circuit in North America. But before we get there, let's start with today's schedule because it's another early start. 7.45 a.m. over at the Palace Ballrooms, And if you end up missing it, well, there's not too much to worry about because on Friday, we'll actually be having highlights from that panel session moderated by NATO's Jackie Brenneman with executives from both distribution and exhibition going over some of those HR challenges that will be appearing on our Friday episode here on the podcast. Today, we have another busy day moving on in the agenda, a 9.45 a.m. studio presentation from Disney. As we all know, Disney skipped the 2021 edition of CinemaCon. They screened Shang-Chi instead, but this year they are actually coming in with a slate presentation. We'll be very curious to see what happens and we will be sharing our recap of that in tomorrow's episode. Today's schedule finishes up at 4.15 p.m. with a presentation from both Universal Pictures and their specialty arm, Focus Features. Again, in the Coliseum, we will also be going over those highlights in tomorrow's episode. But today I am joined once again by Sean Robbins and Rebecca Polly, our co-hosts here on the show. So I don't know about you guys, Sean, Rebecca, I'm pretty tired uh it's it's only tuesday night as we record this but these are these are long days here in vegas we're am i still jet lagged i don't even know i've talked to several people and and asked like is it just me or does everyone seem more tired this year and and it, it's i think it is a legitimate thing i think we're out of practice with it or something <laughs> yeah it's getting used to being in crowds like this again it's, it's right we're relearning how to socialize with movie people yeah i mean last year was a little bit tentative everyone was like really careful also there was like the existential threat to the industry Mm -hmm. so you had like survival panic like survival adrenaline Mm -hmm. just pushing you through everything but it's uh definitely a different tone this year at the event so let's start with our recap of the day because it was an early morning at 7 45 a.m with a marketing panel we're actually not going to go over that 
because that is going to be our feature interview segment on Thursday's episode. So we're going to be having excerpts from that panel conversation with exhibitors on Thursday morning's episode here on the Box Office Podcast. So we're going to jump right into it. After that, we had the state of the industry. It's a nice occasion here at CinemaCon. They gave out the NATO Marquee Award to Ellis Jacob. That was a nice little speech, some nice remarks. And then John Fithian came on stage. And uh, this is probably going to be the, the headline of the show so far, right? Absolutely. And and uh, he was preceded by, uh, by Charles Rifkin, who, and we spoke about this yesterday, uh, emerging as the theme of, of this year's CinemaCon. Um, piracy, why we hate it, but also why it kind of accidentally uh, did us some good. Sean, you were saying it was a little bit of the enemy of the enemy of our is our friend situation. Right. Um, in his in his remarks, uh, the quote that stood out for me was John Fithian saying, "Simultaneous release is dead as a serious business model, and piracy is what killed it." With the data we have, I think that's an argument to be made. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'll we'll see where it evolves. We've seen titles go to streaming. Of course, Disney's Turning Red, that Pixar title, originally scheduled for March. That's the most high-profile example of an unexpected disruption to the release calendar. But what John is saying, a day-and-date release of a major tentpole, like we had last summer with Black Widow, like we had in the fall with Dune, we haven't seen that this year. Sean, is it something that you're expecting at this point? Uh, very rarely, I think we'll see it. We'll, we'll see one from Universal in a couple of weeks with Firestarter, but that's far from a major tentpole. Not right. to knock any movie, but just realistically speaking, that's not a movie that's that's going to be blowing down the box office doors like a Doctor Strange or a Top Gun next month. We'll see examples, I think, throughout the year, but certainly far fewer. And, you know, John Fithian is probably right. I think, I think the general... The idea behind what he's saying here is that the move back to exclusivity is certainly in full play. We're going to see that play out this year. It feels appropriate that this happened on the day that uh, the Warner Brothers studio presentation, <laughs> which we'll be talking about uh, later. I Apparently, I missed The Rock. Yeah, you did miss The Rock at the Warner Brothers presentation, Rebecca. A, a great example of what a movie star can bring when they're allowed to promote a movie and, and just publicize it. We'll be going into detail on The Rock's appearance in that presentation shortly. But the first one off the bat here was actually Neon. Rebecca, we got to see David Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future. Not the whole thing. You saw the trailer. What were your reactions to the film? Not only did we uh, did we see David Cronenberg's uh, Crimes of the Future trailer, we also saw David Cronenberg, who was there to introduce uh, the trailer for what is his long-awaited return uh, to the horror genre after going into more dramatic space with uh, things like a history of violence, Eastern promises, um, here returning uh, with Viggo Mortensen for uh, a script he wrote when he was thoroughly in that body horror uh, era. I mean, it looks disgusting, which is uh, what, what it was going for. So. You're going for gross stuff. You you got a Cronenberg ticket, you want some gross stuff, and you want some Viggo Mortensen. It's a good deal. It's a good combo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to see how that plays out. Of course, Neon had a similar challenge in the body horror vein when they got the French language Palme d'Or winner, Titan, last year. They were able to push that to AMCs. I mean, that played in shopping malls. So if they were able to get something that tough and push it, I think past a million dollars in domestic box office, it's pretty good for a movie like that. I think this is the right distribution team for a Cronenberg body horror movie. 
Mm-hmm. I think we're looking forward to it. Their their slate is, it, it's just, what holds it together is the fact that it's all so unexpected, kind of. I mean, none of it really is the same genre. I mean, the second film that they, that they talked about actually was a film uh, that you've seen, Daniel. It's about volcano scientists in love. Yeah, volcano hunters. Volcano hunters. That actually sounds like, like a reality show. That's well, a, it, is a do- it is a documentary. Yeah, it is a, it is a documentary. Uh, but no, it's actually uh, volcanologists, I think, is mm-hmm. the term. I might have just made that up. Fire of love. That's a good, It's a good title for a Harlequin It's a great book. title. I saw this at Sundance. It's a documentary about a married French couple that loves studying volcanoes. And it's a wonderful love story about people that are passionate about something and uh, and just explore their love and relationship through their shared passions. It's a crowd pleaser. This is through a partnership with uh, Nat Geo. Neon has done this before. They've gone to documentaries that you wouldn't think would have a life uh, theatrically. And they've pulled it off. Sean, you know, there's some examples in the recent... Uh, Pass here from Neon coming out of documentaries that, that really surprised folks. Yeah, they've had a lot of success with films like Apollo 11 and Three Identical Strangers. And I think these are good examples of, of movies that cross into the mainstream and find a theatrical audience in, in an era where it's really, it's questioned whether that's possible. And they've really proven that. Yeah. Yeah. Apollo 11 was like impeccable, amazing. I loved it. It was one of those movies, you know, you go home for the holidays and your parents are like, what's, what, what do you need to see? And Apollo 11 was the one I was like, Apparently, I have a thing where I really like archival footage <laughs> documentaries, which coincidentally... That's what this is. That's what Fire of Love is. It's a solid archival footage doc. And so was the uh, the third film that Neon had in their presentation, Moon Age Daydream, um, about David Bowie, the only uh, film to be licensed by his estate, which means they had got like a treasure trove of never-before-seen, never-before-screened theatrically um, footage throughout his career. I mean... I. At this point, it, it is my most anticipated movie outside of CinemaCon, with the caveat that we do have two more days. Um, but it was it was just I it looked amazing. It, it made me feel human emotions. Um, and then the 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 um, the emotional wince of when the director came afterwards, and part of what he said is that uh, they played the wrong version that wasn't color corrected yeah. properly. <laughs> so apparently, this was like the second best version, and it was still amazing. So, but that's coming out from Neon. A good trio of titles from this specialty outfit. Always interesting to see what they have in store. But now let's go to Warner Brothers. Uh, They closed out the day's worth of presentations. An interesting reception. I think everyone was a little bit cold, right? I mean, Toby Emmerich, uh, one of the studio executives going out, being very cautious in the words he used. But things started heating up once he brought Matt Reeves on stage. Matt Reeves announcing... The Batman 2 is confirmed. He's coming back as director, and we're going to have Robert Pattinson back in the starring role again. That was a nice little bit of an introduction, but I think things really kicked off when Baz Luhrmann came on stage. Baz Luhrmann, uh, Elvis. I love musicals. I, I like Baz Luhrmann movies. What are we expecting here? As we look through the latter half of, of 2022, it, it, it seems to be Warner Brothers' like major title that they're banking on did you did you get that impression and what sort of new stuff before we delve into it i'm just curious sean are you a baz luhrmann fan i'm i'm not and i approach this title as not a fan but after this i'm intrigued what's your relation yeah i've always enjoyed his films you know i i I can't say that i'm a diehard fan enough to the point where i've you know bought everyone rewatched them a thousand times and there are those baz luhrmann fans out there it's interesting because 
So we can say we probably aren't huge fans, right? We're probably not people, Sean, you and I, that are excited to hear about a Baz Luhrmann movie. Sure, it's part of the job. But Rebecca, this guy came on. He's so charming. I mean, Baz Luhrmann coming on in person on stage here at the Coliseum and just riffing in an unscripted conversation that was just rambling. But he was genuinely excited and impassioned about this project. And his approach to the film really sold me on being interested in it. Uh, he mentioned that it, his version of the Elvis movie isn't a biopic. So it's not a movie about the rise and fall of Elvis. The way Bas Luhrmann described it, it's a movie about the United States in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And that's a story that is very interesting when told through the prism of the stardom of Elvis. I was, I was hooked after he said that. That's a really yeah. interesting take yeah. on three decades of U.S. history yeah. through stardom. I mean, Sean, how did you react to, to, before you even saw the footage? I think the way he contextualized that and, and framed it in how he's done his past films, Great Gatsby being a prime example of it being an early 20th century film, but modernized in a heavy way. And what we saw in the footage tonight, Elvis is in that, that is cut from that same cloth. And I think... I think what we saw tonight really, for me, sold it even more as you know, maybe that movie that brings back the bo- the baby boomer generation to movie yeah. theaters for the first time because that's that's my parent that's all our parents' age essentially. Yeah. And but I think it's going to expand beyond that. And I th- what we saw tonight really kind of showed to me why Baz Luhrmann does what he does. But I was impressed by how Baz Luhrmann spoke about the project from a conceptual level, and I was equally impressed by the footage we saw. Uh, capping off uh, Bas Luhrmann's uh, appearance at CinemaCon, he said something that I think is really at the heart of why this movie is so important this summer. Coming out on June 24th, halfway point of the year, Bas Luhrmann said, I loved the Batman, but man cannot live by Batman alone. We need to bring all audiences into the theater, and I'm right there with you. And you know what, guys? He's delivering on that promise, and we'll see how this performs Thanks. Ricky play here to market it to older audiences, but yeah. uh, this he can sold be, that room. I think he, he sold it. He sold the room. Yeah. Now you have to sell people yeah, right. that haven't been going to theaters, yep. and this movie I don't think will thrive with just the usual frequent moviegoers. This is where you need to tap in to the people that don't come back that often. Well, if you, one man cannot live on Batman alone, I mean, thanks to thanks to Baz Luhrmann for the transition because. Obviously, a large chunk of the Warner Bros. presentation is going to be uh, these DCU films. But before we dive into uh, what announcements there have been on the DC front, a few uh, non-superhero, non-capes and capers uh, films. We had uh, the Wonka film, Don't Worry Darling, Salem's Lot, which I'm excited for because the book is amazing, and then the Barbie film. Of those four, what uh, what were your takeaways? What stood out? So, so Barbie, we didn't really get to see anything. Oh, we saw we saw a still, and we actually just got the release date for that film. Barbie is coming out in theaters on July 21st, 2023. Okay. So that's something to look forward to. That's really all we saw from Barbie. But of those other titles you mentioned, we did get to see quite a bit. Sean, did you know Wonka was going to be a musical? I didn't see that coming. I did. I'd read about it. Uh, to see it in action, though, is... It, I, I don't know. I, maybe it's because I'm a Timothy Chalamet fan, uh, and I, I I like the Wonka mythos, but mm. I, I was encouraged by what I saw, and I think the fact that it is timed as a holiday movie, 
and a musical and a children's kind of IP, but something that's going to appeal to parents and kids. I'm very fascinated about where they could go with it. I'm just curious as to, I mean, over this last year, we've seen musicals be hit or miss. I mean, In the Heights. Serrano, which is a really good musical. I mean, In the Heights, absolutely. These are movies that really should have worked better, didn't. I mean, for me, the frame of reference for Elvis, for example, coming out on June 24th of this year, is just comparing that to where In the Heights was. That was a June 21 release, no? Yeah. So we're going to have a year's worth of difference on somewhat similar titles in terms of who they're trying to appeal to. And that box office performance is going to be a key data point on the recovery, I think. Unless I'm over-interpreting, Sean. Obviously, Wonka, when it comes out in Christmas 2023, that's going to give us a different uh, perspective. Right. 2023 Christmas, I mean, that's... It feels so far away at this point. It'll be here fast, but right now we have so much to get through. Elvis is absolutely going to be a test of the summer market because that's one of those mid-range movies, so-called, like a Rocket Man or a Bohemian Rhapsody that can come out and really support the market with a strong performance. Now, the Salem's Lot movie, Stephen King adaptation, Small Town, Vampires, is that a musical? I hope I hope there's a version that is, but I'm glad, yeah. I'm happy with the one we have. <laughs> <laughs> the one that we have kind of looks, looks really good. And it's good. It's really scary. Good. I you know. Yeah. And it looks like it's going to be tied into this cinematic universe that we saw Warner Brothers exploring through uh, through those pair of it movies a couple of years back. It it doesn't look like a standalone. I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to uh, Take this in that cinematic universe direction with all the Stephen King cinematic universe. But but that exists in the novels. A big part of that Stephen King fandom are those cameos and those books that hook you in, right? Mm -hmm. It has a great position in September. I mean, that's where Warner Brothers has had a lot of success with horror movies. Yeah, that's always been a successful corridor for them. So and we, to wrap up, I mean, our, our fun, I mean, some people do uh, do think of Harry Styles as a superhero. So maybe this is a superhero film, but don't worry, darling, uh, with him directed by Olivia Wilde. Um, I mean, it's it's not a film that I that I know much about. I like Olivia Wilde's book smart, you know, the, her directorial right. debut. I thought that was that was a really good film. What genre is this even? I mean, what, what are we looking at? When's it coming out? What's its role? In there the- was like a Stepford Wives vibe Ew. to what we saw. But to be very honest, you were there with me last year, Rebecca, when we saw the first footage for this movie. We didn't get to see much more. Uh, I'm not sure how much the public has seen, but from what we saw last year to what we saw this year, I didn't learn a lot more about the title. Sean, this is the first time you're engaging with with so much footage from this movie. What are you curious about from this film? I think the the fact that she kind of compared it to Inception and The Matrix and The Truman Show, a cross-section of those movies, and Stepford, that that really, that tracked for me after I saw that footage. I think Florence Pugh has, has been a star on the rise for years, and this could be one of those movies that really continues to push her even further, yeah. even though Marvel's kind of helping do that too at the same time, but... She is clearly someone who has a lot of range, and this is this is one of those head trippy movies that's going to stand out, I think, and and really kind of continue to extend this this recovery of non IP movies. Original movie. I mean, this is what we've been asking for. So Elvis, yeah, I mean, Elvis is a brand to itself, right? Yeah. But it's the type of movie that we're not seeing in theaters that often. So we have that opportunity. We'll have that opportunity, obviously, with Don't Worry Darling at the end of September. And then it's the DC universe. And we saw a lot. 
So is Flash coming out? Because this movie's been delayed multiple times, has had multiple directors. It is a real movie. It's very real. We saw quite a few We saw a lot of it, man. Essentially a trailer, or an extended trailer, I would say. And a lot of first looks at some of the characters, uh, including Michael Keaton's Batman. Great cameo in what we saw. Fantastic. I mean, nailed it. It was the sort of reception, Rebecca, that is comparable. Not exactly the same, but comparable to what we saw when uh, Spider-Man No Way Home premiered that trailer at CinemaCon last year. No one's going to, nothing's going to top that. But this was in a similar vein. Sean, I think of what we've seen these first two days at CinemaCon, the flash footage is what got the most enthusiastic response from the crowd. It's certainly up there so far. And yeah, I think it was Keaton that probably pushed it yeah. over at the end because that's, that's for a lot of people, the original Batman, uh, especially in this industry where Batman was one of the very first superhero movies to make superhero movies a thing in the 80s. So that's the next one that we have coming out of the, well, we have DC League of Super Pets, which is sooner, but that's animated, that's family. I mean, that is, is it technically part of the DCU? I mean, that's the next title. I think everybody's wondering what is and what isn't part of the DCU right now because we're jumping around from Joker and the Batman to Super Pets to Black Adam and Wonder Woman. This is a brand still figuring itself out. And that's, I think, going to be one of the tasks of new leadership at Warner Brothers now in Discovery. That's something they have to figure out. Maybe they're starting to. I think they can coexist things that don't necessarily tie in as neatly as Marvel does it. But we have certainly saw a great variety tonight. So we saw sequels, uh, we, you, the royal we. Um, we saw some stuff from the sequels to Shazam and Aquaman. Um, did we see a lot from those sequels? I mean, what, what kind of stuff did we get? Shazam, we essentially got a new trailer. Yeah, uh, I believe it was the cool. first trailer, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, that looks like an extension of the first movie, which I think a lot of people love. Mm-hmm. And Aquaman was a little bit of new footage that, they were very clear they're James Wan's working on it and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of that usual spiel when a director comes out to CinemaCon and, and reveals new footage for the first time. But, you know, all in all, everybody that loved those previous movies will probably like these next ones based on what we saw. But listen, I, I'm not a huge, not even fan, but I don't really understand what's going on here. But I know a movie star when I see one. And I think we were all a little bit disappointed when The Rock shows up on the screen, not on the stage, with a backdrop in Hawaii, saying he's sad that he couldn't come to Las Vegas and uh, and speak to everyone there. But then, uh, plot twist, uh, nay, it, was, it was a fake backdrop. He was he was there all along. What? Yeah. No I know. Way. It was cheesy. The magic of worked. the movies. I, it was the cheesy. Magic it worked. Yeah. You got excited. Come on. It was fun. Man walked five rows in front of me. I mean, that's that might be the highlight of my week. Yeah. <laughs> He's, he's a he's a big man. Don't don't he's mess with that guy. Just yeah. yeah, in person you can't like wow. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I wouldn't mess with him. It, it's it. I think you can fit like four Timothy Chalamets in one The Rock. I think that's how it works. You just tie them with a string, and you'll more or less get to that now, size. Now I'm picturing like a, a Wonka DCU crossover. Just wait till next thing. year. <laughs> yeah. yep. But he was there. He showed up, and I think what he did was a great reminder of how refreshing it is when you have a star that's engaged in promoting a film. 
He goes up there and starts name-calling CEOs of circuits. But he calls out Adam Aaron. He calls out Mookie. He calls out uh, Sean Gamble. He's just having conversations with CEOs unscripted, just going back and forth. It was lively. I think the audience yeah. appreciated it, and it, it was really, really fun. Yeah, he was very much the – he was there to fill the role of the movie star in capital letters, selling movie theaters in capital letters. And we hadn't seen that for a long time. We didn't see that at CinemaCon last year. And this is what CinemaCon needed as an event. It had been three years since we had a major star come, be charismatic, take the stage, engage the audience. And this year we get Viola Davis and The Rock? Yeah, it's it's been great. We're only halfway through the week. And we're only halfway through the week. But they're committed to promoting these movies. We really didn't see this from stars last year, guys. And that's a big part of making sure that theatrical releases work. Stars putting in the work. The Rock did that today. Really funny anecdote here. Um, He singled out uh, Cinemark as a theater where uh, his mom, who apparently lives in in South Florida, she apparently goes to a Cinemark location close to her house. And like she'll tell the Cinemark team, I'm going to go to my local theater. You know, can you set me up in the screening? Cinemark, being very smart, they'll put a couple of rock posters, mm. you know, put like a Moana poster there, some standees of in-theater marketing and a couple of corners. Yeah, the rock's mom shows up, you know. Of course. Like, the guy makes you money. You treat, you treat the family you right. You treat his mom right. <laughs> Apparently, the mom will just like walk out with whatever posters they put up. So just a, a, a pro tip here. Any of our listeners in South Florida, go to a Cinemark location Tell the staff you're The Rock's mom. You might walk out with a free poster. Just like take a standee with you. I'm not sure they'll be able to call you out on it. That's adorable. That's such mom behavior. It's wonderful. That. It was really that. nice. And uh, yeah, it was just really, really great to, to have him there. Um, I guess, you know, going through all of this, Sean, uh, what was the one thing you learned from this Warner Brothers slate? Because we said this coming into the event. This was going to answer a lot of questions with a studio that went from day and date to a 45-day window. I think for me, this was a giant underlying message that signaled perhaps leadership, new leadership's intent to return to the good old days. Because even when we went in there, they're showing photos of all of their archival films from the 50s through the 2000s. I mean, you name a Warner Brothers movie, there was a still showcase for about 15 minutes and driving Miss Daisy music playing, leading into Harry Potter music. It was just a kind of a best of Warner Brothers. And to me, that was the takeaway because it's hard to signal out all the movies we've talked about, Elvis, all the DC stuff, Salem's Lot, virtually all of it landed in some capacity. And yeah. that's a really encouraging sign. Fantastic job from Warner Brothers. Fantastic job from The Rock. Uh, really good I slate. Would, I would shout out to Aisha Tyler. She did a great job carrying the yeah. hosting duties as well. You uh, need moderators in these things. Like, yeah, like lively hosts. She yeah. did a really good job, really conversational, talk show style format. Really great job. I mean, I'll, I'll be interested to see, uh, tune in uh, tomorrow when we will be uh, dissecting the Disney presentation to Ooh. see if they can thread the needle like hmm. Warner Brothers apparently did. Yeah. Bar has been set. Yeah, That's exactly. Sure. Well, guys, thanks so much uh, for this uh, new segment. Great uh, insights here from day two at CinemaCon. Coming up shortly, we've got Sean Gamble, CEO of Cinemark, joining us for an exclusive interview, going over his perspective of the business today and why his circuit believes so strongly in theatrical exclusivity, its value proposition, 
but still isn't afraid of working with streamers. An interesting conversation coming up after this sponsor message. Spotlight Cinema Networks delivers the only income-producing programs that meet the need of luxury, dine-in, and art house cinemas. Programs are designed to entertain and increase revenue with less advertising, ensuring the best movie-going experience while generating revenue for your cinema. Visit SpotlightCinemaNetworks.com to learn more today. And we have here Sean Gamble, President, CEO, and Board Director at Cinemark, the third largest circuit in North America. Sean, thank you so much for joining us here in the daily CinemaCon edition of our podcast. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Daniel. So we've got a a lot to talk about here. Uh, Obviously, you've been part of the Cinemark family for a number of years, starting your new role helming this circuit in January 2022. But could you go back in time a little bit and share with our listeners your beginnings in the entertainment industry? Because you've actually worked both sides of the table here. You've been working with the studio side of things and also in exhibition. Sure. I'll I'll actually take you back uh, even one notch further than that. I I actually spent uh, the majority of my early career uh, at General Electric largely within their uh, industrial businesses, a little bit in their financial services businesses. Um, so I have a, a long history there working in finance and operations. Uh, and actually that's what somewhat led me to the entertainment space. I got involved with uh, supporting the acquisition of Universal when NBC bought Universal back in the 2003-2004 time frame. And that's what was my foray into the space, actually. I worked on a couple deals, got put on that deal, and then GE liked to insert, particularly as finance folks, into the new businesses that it acquired. So I was one of those uh, individuals who went in to be the first head of FP&A for Universal Pictures, uh, and then uh, had a brief stint after that back in GE's oil and gas business, and then got asked to come back to be the CFO for Universal Pictures, back uh, in the 2007 time frame, uh, excuse me, 2009 time frame, and uh, wound up being the CFO of Universal Pictures for five years, uh, 200 GE's watch, uh, and then GE sold all of NBC Universal to Comcast, so three years with Comcast, uh, and then had the opportunity to come along to join Cinemark about seven and a half years ago as CFO, uh, and that's what led me here, it just was a good blend I mean, Cinemark looked like a good blend of my entertainment background uh, on the studio side, as well as somewhat my GE background from a retail and, and just overall business standpoint. Uh, it's been a, a fantastic experience being within the exhibition space. Yeah, you've been here now, uh, as you mentioned, since uh, 2014, uh, leading Cinemark on the financial side, and now you are helming the circuit as it emerges from a very difficult position, I think like all of exhibition worldwide. From that perspective, Sean, what are your top priorities for Cinemark in 2022? What are you guys really focusing on this year? Sure. Well, uh, clearly the exhibition space has been one of the harder hit industries uh, within the pandemic. Uh, As we've looked to 2022, uh, we viewed this year as a, a continued year of recovery for our industry and for our business. Uh, so we've outlined really three main areas of priority for our company in 2022. The first one 
exactly navigate the pandemic because uh, even though it, it seems like it's it's ending, it's not fully gone yet. So we're continuing to be mindful about expense management and liquidity and the way we're operating our circuit and clearly health and safety and employee engagement. Um, so all those things remain on the mind and we'll continue to focus on those. While doing that, the second big bucket of priority is just reigniting theatrical movie going, right? Um, getting, we've been working actively with our studio partners to get back to a more steady stream of, of content film releases, which fortunately we're finally back to that state of more week-to-week release of commercial films, uh, as well as uh, working with our consumer base and getting out and speaking to our consumers to improve both awareness that theaters are back open and movies are out there, as well as confidence coming to theaters uh, as everybody's still getting comfortable getting back into society post-pandemic. And then the third big bucket is just continuing to evolve our company uh, for ongoing success in a you know, post-pandemic landscape. Clearly, there's been a, a lot of change and evolution uh, that was already happening to a certain extent before the pandemic and, and certainly happened during the pandemic. So we're just actively working on how we continue to position Cinemark to be successful in the, the new norm uh, as that fully takes shape post-pandemic. And I think related to that, one of the big questions that everyone in the industry is figuring out from exhibitors to vendors to studios has to do with one of those priorities you mentioned. How do you engage that moviegoer in 2022? And is that very different to the way we used to engage moviegoers in 2019? I'd love to get your thoughts on that difference that these last three years have made in bringing that audience back to the movies on a consistent basis. Sure thing. Well, um, yes, I would say it, it's, it's continued to evolve. I mean, I, I think the engagement piece I'll, I'll talk to more specifically in a second, which I would, I would categorize more as what we're doing in the areas of, of marketing in particular. Um, but it all starts with just a phenomenal experience, right? The, the product, the service, it has to be exceptional. And I'd say that, that if nothing else, just the availability of more options for buying for people's time or entertainment sources, it just it continues to put an emphasis for us on how do we take that overall experience to the next level. But specifically on the engagement, how do we engage our consumers? We're fortunate to have been leaning heavily into uh, more sophisticated marketing efforts prior to the pandemic. Uh, and we've really built, I would say, an industry-leading world-class marketing engine um, in terms of, of building awareness, um, driving impressions and exciting consumers to come to our theaters. So we were getting actively in front of them when they're making their entertainment plans weeks in advance. Um, there's, a, there's a heightened focus clearly from consumers coming out of the pandemic, I would say in terms of the value they're seeking, the quality of the experience, their expectations around safety and cleanliness, all areas we've been focusing on, that's a big part of our message as we try to get consumers comfortable and excited about returning to, to theaters. Um, so that's like a big part of our focal point. But again, I'd say we're leaning much more heavily than ever into our marketing channels as a way to build our audiences and drive that awareness and engagement and people to come. And then when we have them with us, it's all about providing them an exceptional experience. And of course, part of that appeal 
is leveraging the unique aspects of the movie-going experience to the consumer. We've seen a number of circuits actively invest in their movie theaters. Cinemark is one of them. You guys are one of the leaders, if I'm not mistaken, in luxury seating footprint in the United States. And you've also invested very heavily in your premium large format strategy. Cinemark XD, your local brand, and you also work with partners like the box for immersive seating, like IMAX for the big screen experience. Could you go into some of those areas of focus that you guys are currently looking at to ensure that you guys are still dynamic and up to date across your locations? Absolutely, and you're absolutely right. We've had a, a fairly consistent history here at Cinemark of investing in our circuit at probably the peak levels of the industry, not only in new amenities, but also just in the general maintenance of our circuit, which is really important you know, in terms of maintaining a theater looking um, like it's current, even if it's an, an older theater. Cinemark is an industry leader in presentation and service. So we talk about our experience, you know, I mentioned it's, it's paramount to take that overall experience to the next level. So we're certainly looking at how we do that, even though we may lead the industry in those areas, how do we take that to the next level? So. With regard to presentation, um, we have a we have the, the best light levels in the business today, and we're in the process of converting our projectors. So take a little bit of time of converting our projectors to laser projectors over time. Um, we have a whole heightened service initiative that we're undergoing to take our guest service to that even that next level. Um, premium amenities, we've seen a big interest, a spike in interest in premium amenities coming through the pandemic, uh, you, you, you mentioned it, we have uh, the highest penetration of recliner seats amongst the major exhibitors in the industry with over 65% of our domestic circuit already featuring our, our luxury lounger reclining seats. We're continuing to work on that. Um, we're continuing to advance our enhanced student beverage, which is clearly a, both a revenue opportunity, but really also part of that experience, giving consumers more choice and greater options in terms of heightened levels of food and beverage when they come to our theaters. We're also focused on just making the overall ability to transact with us more frictionless and easy and simplistic. So uh, we, we rolled out over the course of the pandemic a new online opportunity to purchase food and beverage with our snacks and the tap platform where now you can actually order your food and beverage before coming to the theaters, avoid waiting online, either pick up your food at the concession stand or even have it delivered directly to your seats, just making that overall experience more seamless and easy. Um, so those, those are some of the, the key things I would say that we're focusing on uh, currently in terms of how we're advancing that overall experience. And of course, the other half of that equation is programming. What movies you guys put on the screen, what's available. One of the things that I think has been really interesting from Cinemark over the past couple of years is your willingness to work with major streamers given an exclusivity window. And we've seen that with your work through Netflix. If I'm not mistaken, I think you guys are probably the biggest circuit worldwide that is working with Netflix through an exclusivity basis. Could you speak about that in general, that importance of making sure that the content that comes to your screen is exclusive to you guys for a period of time for you to optimize that run, whether that comes from studios or major streamers? Sure thing. Uh, well, I would say conceptually, uh, even before the 
learning throughout the pandemic, and we certainly have been doing the same thing as it pertains to different types of windows and different types of content, and we're all just trying to figure out what's that optimal model going forward, and we'll present a win-win uh, for both our studio partners as well as for us in exhibition, uh, say more specifically to windows in general. We still absolutely believe, and we think that clearly the data shows, continues to show over the course of the releases in 2022, that an exclusive theatrical window is of high value, not just for exhibition, but for content providers. Now, it's, it's a way to drive bigger box office results, reduce piracy, as there is an aim to create these bigger cultural moments, having that runway uh, in time you need it in order to achieve that, that goal, um, increases overall revenue value, and increased revenue. Uh, and long term, you know, because of those things, a window just it helps to elevate that perception of content and uh, an emotional connection, which ultimately leads to better brand building and heightened promotional value for for films. So uh, even though we're we're testing different things, you know, I think we still very much believe that that is necessary and something that you just see how the films and a lot of momentum that's been building in the theatrical results of the films that have been released to date in 2022, many of which are performing at levels comparable or better to pre-pandemic, and those windows have really been a key component of being able to deliver. We've seen the difference in how those films have performed relative to films that have not had that. So uh, it's valuable in terms of the ultimate promotional impact it can provide studios, for their, for their streaming platforms and their other windows, it's important for filmmakers and, and talent. Uh, and it just provides just an overall lift for those films for everyone. And you spoke about it a second ago, how the pandemic was really a time for testing, for experimentation. And we saw that from partners like Warner Brothers going out day and date at a time when we just needed release dates to stick on the calendar. They provided that, the market stabilized, and now they've instituted, I think it's a 45-day window. That works for them. But it's such an evolving conversation, Sean. We've got examples like Apple TV Plus with the Best Picture winner this year, Coda, taking a different approach to theatrical. Disney still on an on and off basis, I think, Missing Turning Red in the first quarter left a big gap for exhibition once we all look at the numbers this year. Uh, from your perspective, having worked with streamers and having worked with studios in defining that post-pandemic window, how confident are you that things are going to stabilize moving forward? That studios and streamers alike are realizing the value of the exclusivity proposition you speak of? So 
trading off one thing for the other. It's just people who love content, love it in all formats. I know that was my own behavior. I love going to our cinema theaters and watching movies, and I watch movies at home. It's not whatever. And the reality is, there is a true value of quality and, and the perception and the connection that consumers have with content in theaters that creates value for those platforms. It's no different than how movies historically that were released theatrically, they consistently perform better in the home, whether it was on VHS or DVD or in the paid TV window. If they're, they're just, it's a perception of value. It creates better awareness and there's a promotional element to it. So don't see how that's any different when it comes to streaming as well. There's, there's a, a, a real positive here in how these two different types of distribution can be complementary to another versus one versus another. That doesn't mean that all films necessarily will have the same window or all films necessarily should have. Like, if anything, I think one of the things that we've seen which was a challenge prior to the pandemic is some of the smaller or more niche films, they had a much more challenged financial model for the studios. And because of that, you weren't seeing as many of those types of movies being released theatrically. They'd get pushed out direct to video or to VOD and those types of formats. Now, with a more flexible window, I can actually see a situation where more of that content comes back into theaters because there's a more viable theatrical model, a more viable holistic film model for the studios that works. So, again, I think there's still going to be some evolution in learning, but I'm, I'm very optimistic about how these different types of distribution channels can actually be very complementary to each other versus, you know, this, this false narrative of them competing against each other. One of the things I think Exhibition has learned in the last two years are how to optimize those gaps in the release schedule, especially when titles move, when there's quiet periods, when you can't consistently depend on a studio title to come in and fill those gaps. We've seen event cinema and alternative programming really take off and be optimized in those periods. You've seen anime grow to a top 10 genre here in the US and event cinema events like let's say concerts, we had that K-pop concert not too long ago, uh, do fantastic worldwide. Cinemark did something very interesting last December when you guys partnered with ESPN to bring the college football playoff to your screens. Could you talk about those efforts that you guys are doing outside of the studio release slate to bring on other types of content that may engage audiences in these in-between periods? Absolutely. We've been big believers in uh, alternative content, as we call it, for a long time. If anything, um, we've had more of a frustration that it, it hasn't become bigger that it, it is at present. But you're starting to see more and more examples of success. Like, you know, the, the, the BTS concert recently, Jujutsu Kaisen, O, Triple R. I mean, there's, there's been more and more of these types of films recently that have really had some significant results. We were very thankful to our, our partners at Disney for helping us to enable uh, the ESPN event with uh, you know, the college football playoffs and the championship, like you said. It was just something that we were trying out to, to see what type of interest there would be in the future potential. Um, one of the things we've seen, and again, this, this comes back to your last question about the optimism, 
perfect examples of that with different gaming types of events we've had. People come to the theaters because the energy level and the crowd engagement is just a totally different experience. You've got, you're giving the fans something, you know, the owners of this content, they're providing their fans with this experience than they might not otherwise be able to have, and they love it. They just, so it, it's a way to actually support your fans by producing these types of events. So I think we're going to see more and more of those types of opportunities because of that. The key is, you're talking about filling gas, I mean, the key is figuring out what types of content really can have meaningful scale because a lot of these events take a lot of work to put together. Um, and so the question becomes, all right, how much can they do? Something like um, you know, the BTS concert did where it did $7 million almost in the U.S. on two showtimes. Like, can it have that robust scale or is it going to be a lot of work and just have a limited value? So that's really the solve. Uh, the other thing that we've been doing is on the flip side of that equation how are we managing some of those gap periods. If anything, I would say one of the, one of the other learnings through the pandemic is how to operate that much more flexibly in terms of the scheduling and programming of our theaters. Now, in, in the past, I would say operating hours tend to be more uh, set in terms of more consistent throughout the, the course of the week, uh, maybe varying a little bit from the weekend. Whereas now, we're far more flexible and dynamic just in terms of the way we're flexing our hours of our theaters based on the demand of the program that's going on. So that actually helps with just the, the cost side of the equation in managing the business. And of course, this interview that our listeners are tuning into is airing during CinemaCon 2022. The spoiler alert for them is we're recording this in advance because I know both our schedules are going to be hectic in Las Vegas. But uh, with that preamble, what are your expectations for CinemaCon 2022? Because last year, I, I don't know about you, I mean, on my end, it was just a sigh of relief. You know, we're still here. Now, since last August, we've had a number of massive box office hits that emphasize the value of theatrical exclusivity, that show studios what happens when you put films consistently on the schedule. With that context, what are you expecting from this year's edition of CinemaCon? Well, hopefully as folks are listening to this during CinemaCon, my, my predictions here will be accurate. Uh, but I, I suspect it's going to be a, a great event with a tremendous amount of energy. Uh, you just said it, uh, the, the momentum of movie going just continues to build with the majority of films released in 2022 overperforming expectations and delivering results, as I said earlier, at the level if not better than 2019. So I think there's just a real sense of positivity and you know, positive energy there. And I, I expect that's going to be rampant uh, while we're in Las Vegas at CinemaCon. And I suspect, you know, that it, while the studios had to do what they needed to do to get to it, I suspect there's going to be a lot of studio leaning more heavily back into theatrical. We're going to hear a lot of that messaging while we're there because, again, it, it's in everybody's best interest. The fans, the filmmakers, the studios, and exhibitions. So I think it's going to be a fantastic event and I'm looking forward to being there. And this year's edition just kind of feels like a reunion, right? Like huddling back as a team to figure out what the next years are going to be looking like. What factors, from your perspective, do you believe will help the theatrical industry not only recover, but thrive even in the coming years, even with all this competition and noise we're hearing 
from media fragmentation around us? Uh, well, look, I think, I think it all starts with great content. Uh, you know, that, so that's something that we always look to uh, filmmakers, our, our studio partners, and alternative content providers to, to provide us. Then um, it's on exhibition to really continue to provide a phenomenal experience and make that experience better. Um, I mean, we all need to lean heavily into how do we make service better and cleanliness better and the overall cinematic value of, of movie going better and the amenities. So I know we're not alone in, in working on doing that. Um, leaning more heavily into marketing, as I talked about, sophisticated marketing, it, it's not just enough to expect that people are going to come to the movies now with so many competing forces. Uh, you got to really be out there and in the consumer's mindset when they're making plans. So I suspect you know, that's something else we're going to be leading into. And then, of course, just how are we going to thrive in the near term and long term? I think just fully getting past this pandemic and people getting back into their more social, communal behaviors uh, will bode really well for for movies and going to the movies because you know, when you strip it all down, it's a great experience. It's a great value. It's a great And that will do it for today's edition of the CinemaCon podcast here from Box Office Pro, live from Las Vegas, presented to you by Ice Theaters. Thanks again to our feature guest today, Sean Gamble, the CEO of Cinemark, for joining us in that very lovely conversation we had about everything exhibition. And thanks again to my co-hosts, Rebecca Polly and Sean Robbins. On behalf of myself and our entire team here at Box Office Pro, Thanks again for listening. We've got another episode coming to you tomorrow with highlights from that Tuesday morning 7.45 a.m. session that maybe some of you guys here probably slept through. It's okay if you did. We'll have highlights from that in tomorrow's episode. Some marketing insights from executives from AMC, from Cinepolis USA, Reading Cinemas, and Warehouse Cinemas. So be sure to tune in. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with the Box Office Company and Record Edit Podcast. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review us. We'll be back again here tomorrow with another episode of this podcast series. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.